If you love a prodigal, you can discover help and hope for your wilderness journey right here at the When You Love a Prodigal podcast. And also some help and hope for your own life journey. Remember, if you think, I should do that or I should try that, you better jot it down or you won't remember it. (laughs) I know from lots of experience. (laughs) So you are going to be blessed by our guest today. She has so much experience as a mom and as a counselor. I've known her for years. uh, And I know that she is a compassionate, wise, and practical person. So welcome, Nancy. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, it is our privilege to hear from you. And so let's just start, and you give a little bit of history or background on yourself so we get to know who we're talking with. Okay. So I came to Christ when I was 15. And at about me too. At fifteen. At that's fifteen. Great. <laughs> My best friend in high school led me to the Lord and then dragged me to an Urbana mission conference when uh-huh. I was sixteen and I began to pray about someday going to Africa actually. And did you? I did. I did. I spent five and a half years in East Africa at the Great Commission Training Center. Okay. But my whole vision for college was to work hard at learning how to grow up in Christ and have a ministry so I could someday go. So I did come on staff with crew, and I spent um, 23 years on staff, mostly in the campus ministry, and seven years into it, that's when I went to Africa. And then when I came back, um, my kids got a little bit older, I decided to go um, get my master's in counseling. But it's interesting, Judy, I always thought I'd go back to school and become a counselor. Did you really? Yeah. A lot of my discipleship, I mean, it was like a revolving door. I mean, there was this little taco place across the street in Kearney, Nebraska, and people would knock on my door and we'd go over there and I, I would talk and I would listen and I would counsel. And and I really cared a lot about the whole person, mm-hmm. even back then. And in my action groups, I would have... Um, these girls, I would give them books to read, and then they'd have to report in our group on what they're learning and share a little bit about what the book meant to them. And we worked on emotional health and mental health, even in those years. That's awesome. And so it's always been a part of me. Yeah. I, I recognize that because my daughter had a similar path. Mm-hmm. She was on staff for five years. Um, and student staff kind of things before that Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, and then she went to counseling to school and got her license and and that's what she's doing and so it's um, been fun to watch her grow and and I've gotten to know you from some things we've worked on together and so that's been a very special thing and I know that you have a lot to offer so tell us a story of lives you've seen change? Just one or two. Okay. I remember you asked me that question and I, you know, I'm trying to brainstorm. And one of the things that came to mind, Judy, is I see a lot of redemptive moments Mm -hmm. that are building into a redemptive story. And that's good. And so, you know, coming full circle, um, I don't see, I don't have a lot of those stories, but in the counseling room in particular, um, I think it's a lot easier 
as a counselor than as a parent. And so I'll share a little bit about, <laughs> you know, some stories of good outcomes in the counseling room. And then I'll talk a little bit about the challenges as a parent because they're two different um, places, right? Oh, absolutely. And um, I've been working with this 22-year-old young man. He's a pastor's kid. Um, he's also on the autism spectrum. And, you know, kind of had a, you know, jump out of college because of a traumatic event in his life, a sexual type of traumatic event. And, um, you know, he comes to me, you know, depressed, traumatized, coming from a Christian um, um, life and family and says, I really want to trust the God and love the God my parents love, but I'm just like torn up inside. Yeah. And um, and so we started looking at his timeline. I do a timeline thing with, with people. He brings this big board in, this, this um, paper, and he just starts the first five years, and we just kind of walk through his narrative. That sounds like a really helpful approach it, to me. <laughs> it's a way for me to get to know somebody, mm-hmm. but it also allows me to see themes. And as we begin to identify some themes— you know, and and try to unravel a little bit of why he landed where he landed. He's feeling like he might be bisexual. He's clinging to this and that. He's got some addictions in there as well. And he's having a lot of redemptive moments. Oh, thank you, Lord. And because, because nobody's ever taken the time to listen to him, and his parents are great. I'm sure they're great. But, but, I think his struggle is the only thing they care about is that I trim my beard or I pick up my room or like he doesn't know how to feel safe with his parents to talk and unravel a little bit of his story in hopes for some kind of connection. So there's a lot of disconnection for him. So the beauty of being in the counseling room with him is I have an opportunity to to validate him and love him and um, help him sort out some of the things that that are going on in his life in hopes for a redemptive outcome. So what do you, do you think it's possible for parents, they won't be counselors, but to learn to do more of that Absolutely. affirmation and Absolutely. helping them know that they're cared for even in their struggles? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would think that that would save you a lot. <laughs> of course, you might not make as much money if you don't have any clients <laughs> right. because the parents do a better job at it. But I, I know that in our my early time with our prodigal at that time, who came from major disruptive things in his life because he was adopted and he was almost 10 when we got him. And, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. And, and I'm, I tend to be an affirming kind of person, so I could do that some, but he made so many bad choices mm-hmm. that you just get frustrated and you think you don't have to make these choices. Mm-hmm. And, and so anything that you can say to parents to help them with that is going to be a really good thing. And I know we're going to talk some about Mm -hmm. bridge building, which is a huge part of it, I Mm -hmm. would think. You know, as a parent, you know, I I had a a son that made a lot of bad choices. And what I've learned is 
Well, in the midst of it, you know, parents are pulling their hair out. It's incredibly frustrating. It is. You know, bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. But kids, when they're young and adult kids, you know, children um, in 20s, 30s, the bad behaviors are driven by something. Yes. <laughs> they Almost are dr- always. Always. Yes. There's uh. a reason why a child lies. There's a reason why why a child no matter how old they are, will make some of the decisions that they make. And so, you know, one of the things that I had to learn is that there's something underneath that. And that, that you know, my son has a really redemptive story, and I'm so grateful for his narrative. And, and I think, you know, I think there's a lot of contributing factors to why his story is redemptive. Um, and I'm going to share some ideas of what we can do, you know, as parents. But I think extravagant love, unconditional love, is probably the most important. Yeah, the foundation yeah. of. And, and, and as a parent, I think we have to surrender our outcomes, our dreams, our mm-hmm. expectations, and recognize that God's got this guy's this story. <laughs> you know, we have to surrender those and. And and I remember there was a time with my son in particular caught up in some addictions. And all the advice I was getting at that time was kick him out, kick him out, kick him out, set this boundary, set that boundary. And I was really torn. And I began to ask God, what do you want me to know about this? What do you want me to do about this? And I was so torn up, and I remember, because God wasn't calling me to do that. (laughs) So I was up against this tension of all these people in my ear, and I made a call to a friend. And I said, this is what I believe God wants me to do, and I just need some reflective feedback from you. And she said, well, you have your own relationship with God, and you know your son better than anybody, so go with what God's telling you to do. What a wonderful thing you heard then. But I, I heard it from God. But, Judy, what I want to say is the validation coming from other believers wasn't there for that piece. I, that I, we can actually that. hear yes. from God. Yes. God can talk to me about my son. God can talk to me. Judy, I drive to work and I ask God, what do you want me to know about this client and this client and this client? What do you want me to say? And I, I lean in. It's a very sacred place. I don't just go in and go, I'm going to listen to people today. No, I really try to lean into what does God want. And I think as parents of kids who are struggling, we've got to learn how to do a better job at listening to God. Oh, I think that's so important, so helpful. We we do tend to listen to what's being said out there or said specifically to us because I got plenty of people telling me what I should be doing. But I had one person who said, the most important thing you can do is love them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to learn how to do that. Uh, better and what you're talking about of affirming them of finding out the what's under there to be causing the things and and yes some of it's what's in the world today in mm-hmm. the society but some of it usually has to do with some experience in so, their life yeah absolutely absolutely and I think Judy and I'm going to share some ideas today but I really think you know, the bottom line is our hope has to be in a redemptive God. Yes. You know, that we don't, 
you know, God in his power and God in his love can do anything. And that as a parent, I think the unwavering piece for me was that I hoped in God, not in myself or my strategies or anything else, or even in my son. It had to come. Um, my hope had to be in God that he came, you know, to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. <laughs> you know, he came to redeem people's lives. And I needed to have that hope and value my son and value every client that comes through the door that they're deeply loved by God and have incredible value no matter how messed up they are. Thank you. That I That's the message. And I'm very grateful for you sharing it. So how then do we go forward? How do we see progress or how do we how do we engage with our our person who who could be any number of ages um, and different places in life, some of whom will never go to a counselor, parents who say, I can't afford to go to a counselor Mm -hmm. or whatever. How can we be part of the help? Well, I I mean, it depends on the problem, really, Judy. I mean, when we're dealing with... um, you know, really significant issues like addictions, for example. Let me just throw that out there because addictions are a, a category in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And then there's other behavioral dysfunctional things that that adult kids are getting into and our culture is getting into quite a bit with the um, identity confusion, sexuality yes. confusion, and those kinds of things. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But, but in particular, the research really on addictions suggests that trauma drives them. You know, everybody does something with their pain and their woundedness. Yes. And, you know, sadly, we don't develop enough really good coping strategies young in life. And so they grab the the other kind of strategies that might numb their pain. Numb their pain, yeah. And what, what ends up happening, um, Judy, is when the addiction forms, it begins to reorder the brain. Okay. And when the brain becomes disordered, then it's very hard for them from a behavioral standpoint to change because as they begin to maybe become sober, then they're having some of the symptoms that are increased anxiety, increased depression, and they mimic mental health disorders, and then they don't know what to do with that, so they have to use again to relieve them and it's this vicious cycle and so with addictions in particular you have to unravel the trauma story in order to have a redemptive story so pause there just a second i I talk to people and they think well my child hasn't had any trauma in their lives what might be a trauma cause what kinds of things so trauma trauma is any kind of event or series of events or ongoing life events, for example, that have a negative impact on a person's life that distorts their vision of their self and their place in the world. And so with that being said, when we think of trauma, we think of something really big. Mm-hmm. But trauma can be, you know, my childhood trauma was was related to my parents' divorce, but it was more about the inferred meaning 
that I attached to what happened that imprinted my life. I'm not good enough. I must not be loved enough. I'm not smart enough, those kinds of things. And so Christian kids have their own little traumas. Um, Sometimes they're in a high-conflict family. Sometimes they're being bullied. Sometimes um, maybe they go on overseas mission trip and they are full of anxiety or panic. Or maybe it's... um, my mom doesn't listen to me. <laughs> it could be that. It could it? be that. Yes. Or my dad works too much. You know, I never see my dad. Um, it can be a variety of things. And I, I think for the Christian parent, especially missionary Christian parents, they often think God has protected them and their kids from anything that could be traumatic. And mm-hmm. that's not necessarily true. Um, it's, not, it's not true at all. Yeah, I I think of bullying, for example. Parents don't know the things that some, this child is this way and these people are doing things mm-hmm. that are frightening or de- devastating even. Mm-hmm. And we don't even know it. Or the kid who nobody will sit with in the lunchroom. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, that's just life. Well, it's a traumatic part of life. It's a traumatic part of life. And and. And I think, Judy, it's safe to say everybody has some kind of trauma because all of our experiences, all of our relationships begin to shape the way they th- we think about ourselves, about God and others around us. And so any of these small experiences begin to shape the way that we think and feel about ourselves. And if that's a negative template, that often will lead to dysfunctional things or a, a place to belong. If somebody doesn't belong anywhere with any group of people, they're they're looking and grasping for things. And, you know, back in the 90s, you know, when I was raising my kids with the tough love ideas that people were getting, we were just addressing behavior. They're, this person's lying. This kid's got a seat. Oh, my gosh, how can you get a seat? You know, you know you're not working hard enough. You're not doing this. We say things that shape the way they think about themselves. And so so this tough love idea that we just a- attach, you know, and attack behavior is is a really um, misguided approach because we're not asking, wow, are you having a bad day? Is something going on? And we're not listening to the kids, whether they're young or whether they're old, and they're screaming at us to listen to them. I'll give you an example. I got this new client uh, about six months ago, and the mom comes in and says, I need you you to help me turn my daughter around. She is drinking. She has identity issues, and she wants me to call her by different pronouns and by a different name. And she's been in the hospital for deep depression, suicidal thoughts, the whole bit. And I said, well... I said, how are you building a bridge towards her? And um, she says, well, you know, we're trying to explain to her that what we believe is we need to call her by her real name that we gave her and the right pronouns. That's what we believe. I said, she already knows what you believe. I've said that so many times. And I said, so why do you want to die on that hill? I said, like you're creating shame and you're attacking this idea that she doesn't feel comfort comfortable in her own skin but why 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 not just connect with her she needs connection she needs to know she's valued she needs to know she's loved she's and, and so 
I think Christian parents think of boundaries like, this is my boundary. And so if she's going to live in my home, then she's got to let me do what she's got to follow these rules. And I'm I'm like, no, I, I, I don't think that's what she needs. She needs to feel emotionally safe. She needs to feel loved unconditionally. And what you're telling me is you can't do that. She goes, well, I, I think that's a compromise on what I believe. I said, it's really not. And so here we are. You know, I can't help this poor child because I can't get through to the parent that that she needs to build a bridge in a relationship of connection, that this child needs to be heard, needs to be seen, needs to be loved, and or else she's going to go somewhere else. So how do you do that? <laughs> Well, I mean, like, it's really tricky in the counseling room because I'm trying to build a therapeutic relationship with the parent for the sake of the child. So it's very um, complicated. And the mom kept coming back and kept coming back. And it ended up being the mom kind of came around to building a bridge, but the dad couldn't. And um, the the dad wouldn't come and talk to me. And um, I'm not sure how this this girl is doing because she was seeing another counselor um, at the time and they weren't convinced that I could be of any help. So if someone's open Mm -hmm. and says, all right, I, I would like to be able to build a bridge, what are specific or tangible or clear things I can do that would make the difference, that would make this child know that they're loved and they're accepted. They already know, like you said, that you don't agree with their choices. Mm -hmm. And so you're not trying to convince them uh, of your choices. They know those. How, though, do we build the bridge that restores the connections that have been lost that says, even though I don't agree with your choices, which you don't have to say because they know it. They already know it. Um, But how do we say, I love you no matter what? It's what God does to us. Absolutely. It's giving them love even though they don't deserve it. And I think empathy. Okay. I I really think we don't do a great job with empathy with our children. So what does that look like? It looks like trying to put ourselves in their shoes. If they're struggling with their sense of self, their identity confusion, you go, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry that this is so hard for you. Help me understand, you know, what's going on inside your head or inside your heart. Like, I, this has to be so difficult. So there's no really, like, leaning into trying to understand what the, the child is, is dealing with. And so part of empathy is being very curious and inviting. Curious, that's a good word. And inviting, inviting, help me understand. I don't understand. Tell me a little bit more. And you really want to open up that place where they can feel emotionally safe. And empathy is one way for them to feel emotionally safe. Because if we shame them, they feel disconnected. They don't feel sh- safe. And so a parent needs to build an emotionally safe environment in that relationship. And empathy empathy is an anecdote to shame. Brene Brown talks about that. It's an anecdote to so much of letting the defenses down to empathize. So... 
I'm trying. I'm trying to put myself in the parents' place mm-hmm. to uh, to know how to to do that. So they listen, and then they still have this desire to see something change, and it may not happen. At least not quickly. Not and, and none of this is quick. <laughs> The unraveling of why they landed where they landed is is not quick, Judy. And so they really have to stay the course and build the bridge one brick at a time. <laughs> I mean, so I think a lot of us don't have that kind of patience. Even. We don't have that kind of patience. And I, I think I can use this example of my son. I, I think that was a strength of mine, empathy um, and connection with him even though he drove me crazy and I pulled my hair out a lot. But I give this example. I think he was in middle school. I mean, this is kind of a young example, but it carries over into how I parented him as a young adult as well. But he had an iPod that he loved music, and he had an iPod, and he a nice one, you know, like a $300 iPod, and he <laughs> lost it. And, you know, he was all upset and crying. You know how much I connect to music, how much I need music. So I had this little iPod. And so I said, you can use mine and load it up. You know, you can use it. Try not to lose it. Um, And, you know, a couple weeks later, he lost it. And he's distraught. You know, you're going to be so mad at me. I lost this and I really need it. And he was crying and remorseful and very, very upset. And, And it was all I could do not to scream at him, right? Like, how how come you, yeah. you know, can't be responsible? Be responsible. <laughs> be <laughs> responsible. Know, the, the whole parent reaction. And I was driving to work that, that morning, frustrated, angry, and God whispers in my ear, I want you to go buy him a new iPod. And a $300 one. Oh, my listeners are saying, you can't do that. Right. So, <laughs> but I agree. So I'm like fighting with God all the way to work. Like, <laughs> I don't have time. I don't have time. I'm not doing this. I'm really arguing a little bit. God laid that on my heart. And I had a hour free near a radio shack when those were still around. I went in, I bought a $350 iPod. I don't even know what I'm going to do with it, but I bought it. And God began to work in my heart. And I came home and I said, Jason, come on, sit on my bed. I, I want to talk to you. And I and this really came from God, not from me at all, Judy. But um, I w- wasn't even sure what I was going to say, and it just came out. And I said, Jason, I bought you this iPod. And he goes, well, why would you do that? And I said, well, I said, I know how much music means to you, and I, and I, I want you to know that I get you. I get it. I get that music really means a lot to you. And I just want you to know I get you. And whether you deserve it or not, I really want to give this as a gift. And I want you to understand it comes from the heart of the Father. And he gave him a big hug, and he couldn't believe it. He never lost that iPod. <laughs> I bet not. <laughs> and, but, you know, the message that I gave him was two things. I get you. I get you. And I want to connect with, with what, what means something to, to you. you. Right. And that it came from the heart of the Father. It didn't come from my angry heart. It came from God's heart. It was extravagant, if you want to use that word. It was unconditional. And I think... If there's anything that Jason would say about me in his journey, I mean, he honored me quite a bit in his wedding, by the way, it was that I extravagantly and unconditionally loved him. And and I worked hard to connect. I have an emotionally strong, emotional connection to that son. And he 
and he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt how much I love him. And what so there was moments, yeah. moments, there are moments, Judy, in the midst of much failure as a parent. And I think as a parent, the other thing I would say besides empathy is owning our part. Like, what have I done to hurt you? What have I done to wound you? And taking responsibility for for my part. And and God gave me opportunities all along with Jason to do that. And one of my other sons is um, moved back from Michigan, and we're having conversations. And, you know, I'm learning things that hurt them. And I think part of building that bridge is taking that ownership, that responsibility that I did the best I could. I didn't know that I hurt you. Right. And, and really making amends with with these children and taking a look at our own hearts. And that's not easy to do as a parent, as a Christian parent. No, because we have high standards. Well, we, we, <laughs> we think everything we read is like— is is like a formula for success, Judy. And what I've realized, I mean, I read like, I mean, I'm a big reader. I read a couple books a week. I, I love wow. to read. I'm jealous. <laughs> but I don't, you know, when people ask me about parenting books, I go, well, I'm not really crazy about referring parenting books to you because each book contradicts the next, the next, and the next, right? So I have a few books, and I'll say, I want you to take a look at this book, but take what sounds good to you and leave what doesn't, because I don't think there's any one book that can really fully give you what you need in terms of the wisdom, but the scriptures are adequate for that. <laughs> and so I try to I try to really, like, tread lightly on the book side of things, even though I'm a big book reader. I'm, I'd rather read research than than just books, but um, but but we've absorbed a lot of we should do this, we shouldn't do that mentality, you know, as Christian parents. Well, and yes, I, I find that it's often helpful uh, for myself and for reminding others to think about God's attitude toward you, how much He loved you, what did He do. In the midst of all of your sin, he still had his son die for you. And he offers mercy and forgiveness. And how many times do we have to come back and say, oh, I blew it again, Lord. Mm -hmm. And what is his response? I love you. That's covered. Um, and and still God gives us desire then to, to change. Mm -hmm. And the strength and the wisdom to do it. So he doesn't just leave us floundering in our bad decisions. Right. He helps us move forward. But I just find if I'll stop and think what God's response is, and so I go often to Luke 15 and the and the father who sees his son coming and runs to mm -hmm. him and won't even let him give his apology, and, uh, mm -hmm. and he's loving him and welcoming him. Mm -hmm. And I just, just the things you're talking about. He built a bridge immediately. He let him go when yeah. he chose to go. Yeah. But he he was watching. He saw him from, from afar. Yeah. He, he was, was watching. He had anticipation. Yes. And hope. Another another scripture that I look at is the woman at the well. Yes. So Jesus, he made connection with her. He didn't shame her. No. He He let her know that he knew her and saw her. 
and he offered her life. Living water. Living water. Yes. And he embraced her where she was. Judy, like, like, and, and, and Jesus offered her life in what we offer condemnation. We offer judgment. judgment. We <laughs> throw shame at them when what we need to do is point them to Jesus. Yeah. And we need to make connection with them because of Jesus living inside of us. That may be the only way they see Jesus. Right. And so that extravagant, unconditional, fierce love. Yes. Sacrificial love, servanthood love, whatever we we can do to let them know that we see them, that we value them, that we love them. They already know we're not happy with some of their yes, decisions. That's a given. That. So they, we don't need to harp on that. Just like the woman at the well, you know, you have four husbands, I think it was, maybe three. I don't remember. Four. four. But but the, the point was he didn't say that to shame her. He said that so that she would understand that he knew her and yeah. could see her. And so we don't take that that compassionate posture and... And we throw all of our emotional stuff onto them. Yeah. Jesus didn't do that. No, but, he did not. But we are human, so we do that. But we have to separate our emotional life from their emotional life. And that is not easy to do. And that's where parents need a support system around them so that they can purge out there and not transfer it onto their oh, adult children. So helpful. So we kind of talked more about younger children in our home, but an awful lot of parents that I know, their children have rejected them. Right. And they will want nothing to do with them. They won't let them see their kids so they don't get to even meet their grandchildren. That's really challenging. And so do you have any bridge building suggestions for them? Well, I well, that's a tough one, Judy. It is. Because if you can't cross the child's boundary, correct? Right. They're adult children and you can't cross that that boundary and and so I think I mean the bridge building has to be just being available and very inviting in your posture with them, loving unconditionally from a distance the best that you can do. But I think Judy we're talking about you know, something that these parents have to grieve the loss of what they had hoped this relationship would look like. Yes. They have to really cultivate their relationship with God and their hope that he can do something. And we have to pray diligently um, for them. I mean, sometimes there's not a whole lot else we can do if that boundary is set. And it, and we can't... we. It feels hopeless for some of those parents. Well, it's, and it's, it's, a, it is at a point in time. Yes. Because there's really nothing you can do but wait and pray. And if an opportunity to show love and acceptance and extravagant love even, um, it, you take it. But a lot of it's you're waiting and praying. Yeah. And, and another approach is is – really kind of having to really grieve the loss completely, Judy. And with that being said, I think the goal can't be, how can I get my child to love me again? It has to be, 
getting on our knees and, and praying that they would see their need for God and maybe God could bring this person into their life that could make a difference and turn them around. Because the real redemptive story we really want is that they reconcile with God. Yes. Um, it'd be great if they reconciled with the parents, but I think the perspective taking that that parent has to have, it, it requires a lot of grief. A lot of a loss. Lot of grief. Yes. Um, that there's a there's got to be a hope that that could happen, but the greater redemptive piece is that they'll see their need for God. I just got a word today, uh, an email from a mom who said, "I just want you to know that my daughter has come back to me and to God," and. Wow. She's just, she says, we were, she came and she said, I, I'm so sorry. And the mom could say, I'm so sorry for, because the contributions go both ways. Both ways. And uh, she just, she says, we laughed and we prayed and we danced because <laughs> it was so wonderful to be restored. The restoring, yeah. And, and, but that's the way it is when people are restored to God, too. Mm hmm. And, mm -hmm. But we can't make it happen. We cannot we, make it happen. We think we can, and we can't. Um, that's just amazing. So we could talk a long time, I think, but probably we don't get to. Um, so l let me just let you kind of any other thoughts that you would want to make sure that that my listeners heard. I mean, I think I think as parents. Whatever their age might be, I think you go as you you try to give them all the support they can need, even if that means some professional support. I mean, re yes. re rehab centers for addicts are expensive. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, I've gone broke over the money that I've invested, for example. But God's the one that provides. But I think. Um, because the process, particularly for addictions, the process for sexual dysfunctions, for example, as well, identity confusion, those are long processes. And so I would, you know, just encourage Christian parents to do everything and anything they can do to get their their adult children into some kind of help outside of them. Yes. Because, you know, when we're unraveling the trauma story, we're also addressing sobriety and addiction, but in order for that to be a real redemptive success story, you've got to kind of reshape or reframe the way that they think about themselves, God, and their place in the world, for example, because it's been full of negativity, of self-sabotaging belief systems, false mm -hmm. beliefs. And so the counseling room, I spend a lot of time with identity reformation, I call it. And for real spiritual transformation, we have to have identity reformation. And so I'm doing a lot of work in the counseling room with Christians reformatting their belief system even about God. And so that process is quite lengthy. And I encourage, you know, people to read more about this, about you know, identity, our real true identity formation in Christ. But I do a lot of that work with addicts 
in recovering people because if they begin to change their belief system about God in themselves, that's empowering. Yes, it is. That 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 is so empowering and it's hopeful because they feel so stuck. I I can't, I can't, I can't. I said, you can, you can, you can. You know, like, like, but it, it's a process. Um, I think, you know, we brought in your, with your help, somebody from Moldova, Moldova, and a, a young adult, married man. And I spent, all the time that I spent with him was in this reformation of his sense of self and identity in Christ. Because it's so important. It, it, it took two hours every week for four weeks. And I had my board and we're working through what are the lie-based thoughts? What are your false beliefs? How are they attached to your emotions and behaviors? Let's address them. And I did this reformation of the, his identity. And it's, it's, it's grounding and life-changing because that's where God does the spiritual transformation. It has to come from truth, Judy. <laughs> and we do know some truth, even if we don't always uh, live it out well. Right. Especially it, to a misbehaving, making bad decisions. Well, instead of calling that, we have to use other adjectives, more empowering adjectives. I appreciate your hard work. I'm, um, I see your effort. You know, instead of cutting them down, we need to build them up. So any opportunity to throw out, you know, adjectives that that are life-giving, we need to do more of that, more of that, and more of that, because we're honed in on the poor behavior and how it's affecting them and us, hmm. but not their value in Christ. Right. right. Their value in Christ, their value to us, that we care, we love them, and even to recognize God entrusted them to us, mm-hmm. and we are not uh, professionals, <laughs> and none of us almost. Maybe if you've had four or five kids, you get better at it, or you get tired. Uh, but um, yeah, it's I love the concept of entrusted, and that therefore, just as I've been entrusted with a responsibility, I need to learn, I need to practice, I need to seek to improve, and that is required of us as parents or teachers or Mm -hmm. bosses, Mm -hmm. you know, that we all have the opportunity to help a person rise up as opposed to push them down. down. And... um, I'll tell you a story as we close. So my son, whose first nine years were pretty hard with his addicted mother and the people she was with. And um, he just, he was addicted and he made lots of bad choices. He had a person that he loved and that was his grandfather. Uh, who was in his early life, the only real man in his life. Um, And uh, he adored his grandfather, and his grandfather became very ill and was dying. And so he just told his boss, because he had a job, which he didn't always, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh, he said, I'm sorry, my grandfather's dying. I'm going to be with him. So he spent a week there as his grandfather was declining, And he just poured out his heart to him. 
and and told him all the hurts of his life and all the value that his grandfather had been to him. And when his grandfather died, we thought that he might take his own life as a result because he was losing the most important person in his life. Mm. And instead, he said, I'm going to make Papa proud. I'm going to change my life. I want to make him proud of me. Wow. And that was a major turning point in his life. Now, there were still things that had to change, but that was it because this person had been important. The connection. The connection. He valued him, and it was just— The power of connection. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's so—we're made for it. Mm -hmm. We're created for it. Yeah, like the these kids, they need they need it. They they need this. They need unconditional, lavish, extravagant love, love and the effort to to hear, and not just tell, mm-hmm. and to not shame, but to lift up, give them the positive things, mm-hmm. give them the encouragement. And, so and you know. Both of us would probably say, I wish we knew what we know now, you know, 40 years ago, yes. <laughs> like 30 years ago. Like, yeah. but we, yeah, 40. <laughs> we can only really try to equip and encourage younger moms along the way because we didn't know what we know today. And there's a platform for us to be, you know, discipling other mothers, you know, and families around some of these important values. Thank you. And to my listeners, did you write down a few ideas? Can you begin to practice them this week? Uh, In the show notes, you will read of some resources that Nancy uh, is going to give us to be helpful to you, even though she's not sure she can recommend books. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) There might be a few. So um, thank you, Nancy. You're welcome. I really appreciate your coming and and, and speaking truth and love and encouragement uh, to these people who love a prodigal. So Well, it's a privilege. It's my privilege. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. And God bless you to my listeners.